0: Welcome to The Diet Presents, a video game music podcast. I'm The Diet and this is Galaxy Force. theme this week unless you count the shared theme of all my shows, Top Shelf VGM at rock bottom prices. We're coming in funky this week with a selection from the arcade rail shooter Galaxy Force. The track is called Take Back and the soundtrack was composed by Katsuhiro Hayashi. Galaxy Force was released by Sega in 1988, built on the Sega Y board. As I mentioned The game is a tunnel shooter, and it's in the same vein as Sega's earlier smash hit, Space Harrier. The game was also later ported to the Sega Master System, the Genesis, and even later to the Amiga, Atari ST, Commodore 64, Amstrad CPC, ZX Spectrum, FM Towns, Sega Saturn, and PlayStation 2. Hardcore Gaming 101 calls Galaxy Force the ultimate culmination of Sega's Super Scalar series. Further, it says that the game manages to impress even decades after its initial release. The Super Scalers series was an early form of 3D texture mapping. Capable of scaling and rotating thousands of sprites, it allowed for three-dimensional representations without resorting to the bland look of flat-shaded 3D polygons. And here's where we start to get into the tangent within a tangent. A tangent inception, if you will. A matryoshka of tangents. Oh, uh, Matryoshka is a Russian nesting doll. First created in 1890, they're a set of wooden dolls of smaller and smaller size nesting inside one another. The name Matryoshka literally translates to Little Matron. It's a diminutive form of the Russian name Matryona or Matryosha, and I will exercise restraint and not get into what a diminutive form is. But I digress. The first home video game to make use of 3D polygonal graphics is the 1984 Space Racer Plasma Line. More familiar to most is probably the 1993 SNES title Star Fox. If you picture the mono-colored faces of the 3 objects in the game, you can start to understand flat shading. Flat shading gets its name from the way light reflection is depicted on the surfaces of the polygon, or more appropriately, the lack of light reflection. Each chunk of the polygon has only one uniform color, so it gives a model a blocky look and feel. And this is in contrast with later shading methods that help give the objects a more gentle curve or bend. Superscalar technology simulated the look of a texture map 3D polygon, so using our Star Fox reference from earlier, picture the polygonal starship with detailed sprites wallpaper to the outside surface faces. This would definitely give more life to the game. But that's not quite how it worked. The sprites were manipulated through rotation and resizing in real time to simply give the effect of 3D. I already mentioned Space Harrier, and that is probably the most famous example, but the technology actually debuted in 1985 with the groundbreaking motorcycle racing game Hang On. The Super Scalar Tech was designed by Sega's AM2 division. Led by Yu Suzuki, in researching, I repeatedly stumbled upon this quote. From an interview with OneUp.com, Suzuki said, My designs were always 3D from the beginning. All the calculations in the system were 3D, even from Hang-On. I calculated the position, scale, and zoom rate in 3D, and converted it backwards to 2D. So I was always thinking in 3D. And if you're interested in the interview, despite the prominence of that specific quote, it was actually pretty hard to find an archived version of the entire thing. I'll post a link to the one I found with the blog post for this episode. Let's move on to our next track. From the PC Engine CD, this was a Japan exclusive game. The credits list Shoji Honda as composer, with arrangements by Shintaro Ashizawa. From Efera and Jiloria, The Emblem of Darkness, this is In-Game Music 1. Vera Juliora, The Emblem from Darkness is an action RPG, PC Engine CD game, published by Brain Gray in 1991. It's a minor title that was never released in Western markets. The game is actually based on a one-shot OVA anime called Gude Crest, The Emblem of Gude. Also known as Female Soldiers F.A. and Jira, Crest of Gude, the movie depicts two partners Efera and Giloria, who escape from a slave boat with the aid of their friend Orlin and a young boy named Kilian. When Killian is killed in the escape, or maybe Killian is killed in the escape, Efera and Giliora take it upon themselves to return Killian's pendant to his two siblings who are being held captive by Baron Celdian all-around bad guy, Celdeon is plotting to take over all the neighboring countries. As I mentioned, the game is an action RPG. The player can choose to play as either Afera or Julliora, or try out a two-player mode where you can control both. Afera is weaker, but she can use healing and offensive magic, and Giliora is stronger but unable to cast spells herself. As she levels up, she gets rings that can enhance her sword power, heal an amount of her HP, and Make Her Invincible for a short time. From the scarce reviews I was able to find, the game is lackluster and seems to be pretty generic. One interesting feature I read, though, is that unlike most RPGs, the game allows the player to kill random people in the villages, like clowns people, and NPCs. It's not without consequence, but it's definitely unusual for the time. As for the Composers, the end credits to the game list this information under the heading Featured Song. I have no idea what that means, but Shoji is also under the heading for staff. So I tried to find more information about the developer, but that too wasn't very helpful. Brain Gray was a gaming company that was active way back in the eighties. Brain Gray was a company centered on game developer Takeo Iijima, although it doesn't look like he worked on the Eferia and Giuliora game. He was responsible for the company's most famous game, Last Armageddon, for the PC Engine. The name of the company itself comes from the fictional detective Hercule Poirot. A translation from his expression, Little Gray Cells, was turned into Brain Gray. The company went under long ago, and in 2007 their copyrights were released back to the public. Anyway, I'm not exactly sure how to interpret the composers, but that's all the information I was able to find. Next up is a Commodore double set. The first track comes from the Commodore 64, the second from the Amiga. But first, from the game Pliss, composed by, um, let's say, Stello Ducis? The track is in-game BGM-1. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. is a puzzle game published by Markt & Technik in 1993. But the release is actually a little bit more interesting as it was an exclusive cover disc game for the German Commodore 64 magazine, C64er. Actually, the publisher of the game was also the publisher of the magazine. Markt & Technik, or m were publishers of a number of German technical and computer books, mostly during the 80s. They produced 64er, Happy Computer, Computer Personalish, PowerPlay, and a lot of computer books for other systems like the Amiga, Atari, and others. In the mid-90s, the company saw a change of ownership and moved under the Paramount Publishing Deutschland umbrella, a subsidiary company of the Paramount Publishing Inc. in the U.S. As for 64er magazine, it ran from 1984 all the way up until 1999, According to the German website 64 online, the Commodore 64 was the most widely used computer in private households in the 80s in Germany. Commodore Business Machines, the company responsible for the C64, went out of business in the mid 90s, and that possibly explains why the magazine ceased shortly thereafter. In My Mental Queue is a feature episode about the C64 probably with a partnering episode featuring the Amiga, but that's for another time. I only bring it up now because, while tempting, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. As for the song, well, it suckers you in before it rains arpeggiating funk bombs down on your city. It's not overly complex, it's just a cool neat little track. Anyway, moving on to the other popular Commodore system, the Amiga. From composer Matthew Simmons from the game Shockwave, the track is called Electric Revenge, aka The Red Sector Theme. Digital Magic Software. Somewhat similar in appearance to Afterburner, the game is an action shooter that inexplicably peppers in strategy game elements. This was actually the first game produced by Lightsource, and it was pretty well received critically, especially the sprite-based 3D graphics. I'll just refer you to the earlier discussion on that point. As for the incongruous strategy sections? well... Before you go doling out flying death, you need to first spend time mapping out your attack plan. You do so on a round, radar-like map screen. Well, it overall sounds kind of interesting, uh, and I'd like to see how it works as far as blending the different game styles. I don't think I'm necessarily going to bother tracking this one down. Um, The Afterburner-style game isn't really my cup of tea, but I can get behind a nice beat-em-up And that flawlessly executed little segue brings us right into the Nintendo block of the show. Starting with the SNES from the game Knights of the Round, composed by Isao Abe, this is Desperate Fight. Is an arcade game released by Capcom in 1991. The game was later ported to the Super NES in 1994, and eventually the PSP, PlayStation 2, and Xbox. As I mentioned, this song is from the Super Nintendo version. The game is a Golden Axe-style, side-scrolling beat-em-up based loosely on the legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round… table. The game doesn't actually finish the sentence there. It could be like, Knights of the Round Number, or Knights of the Round Robin, or something like that. The player can pick between King Arthur, Lancelot, or Percival, and while similar, each knight has strengths and weaknesses. The game also features an RPG style level system where fighters automatically upgrade to new weapons and armor as they advance through the game. King Arthur and his knights are fictional heroes said to have lived during the 5th and 6th centuries. While some sources cling to the flimsy platitude that whether or not King Arthur is real is deep within your heart, the weight of the evidence indicates that they actually did not really exist. That being said, historians still debate the historical basis for the King Arthur legend. Arthurian legend revolves around the code of chivalry followed by King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. The basis for the code were honor, honesty, valor, and loyalty. Knights of the round table were brothers in arms. As for the significance of the shape of the round table, it was based on the concept of equality. No one person, not even King Arthur, would be able to sit at the head of such a table. The legend states that King Arthur ordered the round table to be built in order to resolve a conflict amongst his knights concerning who should have precedence. The Great Hall at Winchester was rumored to possess the real actual round table. Now hanging on display, it's made of 121 separate pieces of oak and measures 18 feet across. It weighs a whopping one and a quarter tons. But the Winchester table is believed to have been made in about 1290 for a round table tournament or festival near Winchester. The table was later painted to include a King Arthur and Tudor Rose in around 1522. There's also an outer design believed to portray King Henry as Arthur on his throne. They're also surrounded by 24 places, each bearing the name of one of the legendary knights of the round table. If you're curious about the game, maybe consider emulation on this one. This bad boy fetches over a hundred buckazoids on eBay. If you're curious about the table, Head on over to Winchester, or I'll also put a picture of the table on the blog post for the episode. For our second Nintendo game, we move to the Game Boy. Another strange offering from Europe, this game is called Hugo 2. And when I say Nintendo, I just mean Nintendo made the hardware. They had nothing to do with this wacky software. Composed by Game Boy All-Star Alberto Jose Gonzalez, this is the title screen. I had a feeling that this was one of Alberto Jose Gonzalez's works. It has the happy happy arpeggios that he seems to like, and this track is very much stamped with his mark. And I was surprised to see that I hadn't played anything from him on the show yet. He's one of my favorites, so I'm going to work to remedy that. Hugo is an interactive call-in show created by the Danish company Interactive Television Entertainment, or ITE. Debuting in 1990, the show is dubbed a live, one-player, multi-platform, interactive game show. It has now aired in more than 40 other countries and has been adopted into multiple video games including Hugo 2. The game itself consists of five levels which are all directly based on the mini-games from the TV show. So after my first pass through reading about this, I guess I sort of glossed over what I was hearing. How do you have an interactive phone game in the 90s? Well, a player would call the show and they would control a cartoon character on the TV screen by pressing the keys on their phone. The 1 through 9 buttons represented different character controls. It's just like total craziness to me, it's really great. Like This is exactly the kind of thing that as a kid I would be totally geeked out about trying to call in. Like, you play a video game with your phone, that's great. Hugo himself is a small, friendly troll who is 220 years old. Incidentally, 220 is young for trolls, I learned. He navigates an old mine in a never-ending quest for treasure. But in subsequent seasons, the developer ITE addressed Hugo's family, his 180-year-old wife Hugolina, and their kids, Rit, Rat, and Rut. Also introduced in later seasons was Hugo's nemesis, an evil witch named Scylla. Interestingly, her name was changed depending on what country the show was airing on, and the object of the game became navigating obstacles in order to reach Scylla's skull cave lair and rescue Hugo's family. And actually get this, the Hugo franchise is still going strong. In total, there's been more than 30 Hugo video games. As of 2012, He appears mostly on mobile games published by the Danish company Hugo Games, but an animated full-length movie is currently in development. Hugo, girl. (laughs) Stupid. Maybe you can tell by my tone or how much time I'm spending on this, but I really love it when I stumble upon some other country's cultural touchstone. I'd never heard of this until I heard this track, and even still, I knew nothing about it. So I guess what I'm saying is, knowledge is power. Closing out the episode today is a return to the SEGA Dreamcast. It's also another first for the show, the first song to have vocals. And actually, that's where the word song comes from. It's intended for a vocalist to sing the piece. While I generally use the word interchangeably to avoid repeating the same term over and over, now it can actually technically be correct. VGM fans may even be familiar with the vocalist. Named TJ Davis, she's behind the iconic Sonic R track, Supersonic Racing. And in case you're wondering, yes, I absolutely plan to play that on the show sometime. Apart from the fact that it has vocals, this is also unusual for the show because it doesn't really have that video gamey feeling that I usually focus on. Instead, this just sounds like a straight up club banger from 2003. Slap this on a Ministry of Sound collection and no one bats an eye. But I challenge you not to wiggle your butt part. In fact, the majority of Richard Jake's soundtrack has a kind of neo-disco vibe to it. A lot of blasty horns over dance beats and TJ crooning on top of it all. But before I go, as always, special thanks to Alan Euler, aka Periodical, for mixing and editing the show. You can follow the show at thediadpresents.blogspot.com and you can subscribe via your favorite podcatcher. Please don't forget to rig the show on iTunes if you're so inclined. Or you can even uh, follow me on Twitter where I tweet what I would call Very Occasionally. You can email me at thediadpresents at gmail.com and you can find both my Facebook page and group on Facebook using the various search functions that I trust you can navigate. Until next time, from the game Metropolis Street Racer, from the Sega Dreamcast, composed by Richard Jake, With vocals by TJ Davis, this is It Doesn't Really Matter.